It's nice to be back. Last weekend, I was in Springfield, Illinois, to speak for Pastor Gary Gilly, and I had the privilege of meeting his congregation, and it was a great blessing, a really great blessing. They, they're about the same size church as ours, although they got a lot bigger, nicer building. It's only a few years old, and it's a beautiful building. They have some things that are, um, I mean, they built, because they built it from scratch, they got everything the way they wanted it. And not that I'm complaining about ours, I'm very happy. <laughs> I'm not, every time I go anywhere near downtown, I'm thankful I'm not down there. I didn't realize how much hard work that building was creating for us. But anyhow, Gary has a wonderful place, but the people are the church, not the building, and the people love the Lord, and they've been nurtured on sound doctrine for, from, from day one. And so in some ways, I guess I was preaching to the choir, but you know what? If the whole church is the choir, you've got to preach. Who else are you going to preach to? <laughs> They're all well-trained in the Scriptures and hungry for the truth. I spoke five hours, all, on the, all five hours on the topic of the sufficiency of Scripture. Now, Gary is going to be here speaking for us, kind of a return engagement. He'll be here next weekend. And he'll speak twice on Saturday and once on Sunday. Then I'm going to speak a couple of messages that I gave there that I've never done here for our faith at risk form. So that's what's coming up. Today we're gathered back together to study our passage in 2 Corinthians. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for another Sunday to gather together under the means of grace, to fellowship with one another and The only reason that's meaningful is because our fellowship is with you, as it says in 1 John chapter 1. Thank you that the blood of Jesus is continually cleansing us from sin as we walk in the light, as we do so together. And part of the light that you give us is the light of the scriptures that renews our minds, sanctifies us, gives us everything that we need pertaining to life and godliness. We pray for the scattered saints around the world that listen in. Pray for their well-being. We help pray that you would help them find other saints of like precious faith that they could share together under the, with um, the gospel and the means of grace. And we pray that you would protect them and bless them and care for them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So today we are, oh, let me get my notes out here. Second Corinthians chapter 8, starting with verse 22. We've been discussing instructions about giving. What is the New Testament pattern about how we give? And two weeks ago, we talked about this idea of, in verse 21, having regard for what's honorable, not only in the sight of the Lord, but in the sight of men. And as we mentioned two weeks ago, misuse of money by churches and Christians has brought dishonor to the Lord and His message for centuries. Going way, way back to the Middle Ages, money was abused and misused. And it still is today. So we need to allow the Scriptures to inform us, and it tells us to guard against that sort of thing. And as we said before, the way Paul is guarding against 
dishonor coming to the name of the Lord because of the abuse, possible abuse or misuse of money was that he had appointed three persons to travel with him so that there's accountability and these are honorable persons who were noteworthy amongst the churches and they were called to go with Paul to make sure things are done right. So this is where we pick up in verse 22. We have sent with them our brother, a named person, our brother, whom we have often tested and found diligent in many things, but now even more diligent because of his great confidence in you. More diligent because of his great confidence in you. Now, tested there is a word, dokimazo, that we've run into before. It's used elsewhere in Second Corinthians. And it means to put something to the test to see if it is genuine. So this brother who was going to go with them to make sure everything is done in an honorable and upright way had been put to the test and shown to be genuine, trustworthy, and the sort of person that being along on this trip would ensure that people believe it was done in an upright manner. And this is so important in ministries, and boy, there are so few really big ones that have not at some point or another come under shame or scandal. But there are some exceptions, and the ones that are exceptional have been the ones who did exactly this. Now, I don't always agree with everything that Billy Graham has said and done over the years, but in regard to money, we have to say that there was a person with a big ministry who did things right. I don't, I'm not aware that all those years that that organization has been in existence, I don't remember ever hearing any credible report that money had been misused. Now, the way that happened was that from day one, he found people like this, honorable people, and put them in charge of it, and not himself. And so... It can, we can see positive examples that this has been done correctly in times in, different times in church history. Now, the word confidence there is papo, let me look at this, yeah, papoithesis. And Lao and Nita lexicon says this, to believe in someone or something to the point of reliance or trust in them. So Paul believed enough that, that this was a genuine brother who was righteous and he was willing to put trust in him because he had trust in the Corinthians. So he, this brother would be a good go between, between the Corinthians and Paul. He, he has trust in them. Verse 23, As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker among you. As for our brethren, they are messengers of the churches a glory to Christ. Now, the word messengers there is, uh, wait a second, I had a cross-reference on uh, Philippians. uh, You have the mic, uh, Brian. Um, Well, as long as you have it, why don't you look a verse up? Um, Philippians 2, 20-22. Philippians 2, 20-22. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state, for all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. 
Yeah, I think the New Americans there says they seek after their own interests, not those of Christ. What's the difference between somebody seeking their own interest and seeking that of Christ? Fairly obvious, but what's that? Politicians? Politicians? <laughs> yeah. How many here are tired of TV ads for politicians? Now we got a unanimous vote on that one. I cannot wait until they go away. I don't want to see any more of these. And uh, one of the, I don't want to get into the topic, but I think one of the sad things that's developed in my lifetime is that this has gotten so nasty that it's no wonder everybody's cynical about whoever ends up being elected in any office has already been painted in the worst nasty portrayal by somebody, whoever it is. All right? And so we're just building disrespect for our civil leaders. And it's just too bad. We, should, we need to pray for our country. That's what we can do. We're supposed to pray that as much as possible we can love peaceably. Is that in 1 Timothy 2? I believe that's right. Far be it for me to be wrong about a Bible verse. <laughs> I, <laughs> this, is that in the New Testament too? Thank you, Brian. I appreciate you helping me here. All right, that's what it is. Me and how we're talking about this, let's talk about what the Bible says that we should do. Uh, 1 Timothy 2, starting with verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. There's one God and one mediator between God and men and the man Christ Jesus. Down in verse 8, more about prayer. Therefore, I want the man in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. So, there is the command to pray for people in authority that we might live a decent life. And so we need to pray for our country. We've got elections coming up. We need to pray for those who are in authority. And according to Romans 13, God appoints the leaders. And so whoever we get... The Lord appointed them, and the interesting thing is when Paul wrote that, Nero was the emperor, and he was about as bad as you're going to get. So I guess you could argue if God appointed Nero, I guess he could appoint whoever we get. <laughs> All right, no comments, huh? <laughs> All right, so anyhow, pray for, it's just, a, it's just a bad situation with all of this, people tearing each other to pieces. You, you would get the impression, you would get the impression that the only people there are running for public office are the most nefarious and wicked people in our entire society, which really isn't the case, but that's what these ads would uh, portray in people's minds. So that's a sad story. Okay, so they're all looking after their own interests rather than those of Christ Jesus. That, and, and that's an interesting thing in Philippians 2 that Paul would say, and things weren't so good. I mean, really, if you think that the New Testament era was the good old days, they had problems in every church, basically, that Paul wrote to. They had problems they had to deal with. He said it later in his prison epistles, all in Asia have forsaken me. That might be hyperbole, but it certainly was a massive defection against Paul and his own teaching, even in his own lifetime. 
And we have, if you see the letters to the seven churches in Revelation, this is a pretty bad situation where there was only two that were commended without any rebuke. And even one of the great churches in the New Testament, the church at Ephesus, that you might, if you think about it, there's no church that probably in history, if you just think of the entire church history, and we can't know everything that's ever happened, but we can know what happened in Ephesus and look at the leadership. First of all, they had Paul, if you read Acts 20, that he'd spent years there training elders in, in Ephesus. And then we know that later, when Paul wrote his prison epistles, Timothy was there. Timothy was in Ephesus. And if our church history is correct, John ended up there at the end of his life. So they had some pretty good leadership. <laughs> Paul, Timothy, John, and elders that were appointed by Paul and trained by Paul. But yet, it says in Revelation, they had left their first love. So how much more do we need to pray for our own selves and our own elders and our own church leaders that we would find grace from God, that we might be faithful and not look after our own interests but those of Christ? What are the interests of Christ that Paul is probably referring to? The well-being of the sheep, wouldn't you say? The well-being of, of Christ's own flock because he died. He, the, the church is precious to Jesus because he purchased it with his blood. Right? And having purchased it with his blood, Jesus cares more than any person or pastor or elder could ever possibly care for his own church. And so if we want to be good servants of the Lord Jesus Christ, then we will care for the Lord's flock, and that's having the Lord's interests. So these messengers, in verse 23, are called apostles. Now, I've mentioned this before, but being how we're on the verse, let's talk about it again. The term apostle is used in two distinctive ways in the New Testament. It's used to describe the authoritative apostles, along with prophets, in Jesus, the chief cornerstone, who serve as the foundation of the church. And as I was arguing down in Illinois, the... Paul was the last of those. And there are no authoritative apostles after the death of the biblical ones. But the term apostle or apostolos is also used in a functional way. Here, simply some people going along to make sure that this money was handled correctly. And we have the same terminology used in Philippians 2.25 for Epaphroditus, whose role was to bring a gift from the Philippian church to Paul, who was in jail. Okay? So he was apostolos, meaning sent one. He was sent with a gift. But he wasn't an authoritative apostle giving inerrant revelation for the church. Okay, so that, it's important to establish that difference. In the debate with people in the Apostles and Prophets movement, they oftentimes like to blur this distinction and we'll say that there were 15 or 20 or 23 apostles in the New Testament. There were all these apostles, and Epaphroditus, and they wanted every one of these persons, like Epaphroditus going with the gift to be considered an apostle in the technical sense, 
in order to justify the idea that there, there's more than 12 and there continues to be apostles and so on. Now, some have argued that, well, if the term apostle can be used in a functionary way or functional way here, there's, why can't, do you tell us we can't do that? Well, technically, it could be done if it didn't create confusion. Okay, Technically, we could call someone who was sent as a missionary an apostle in a functional sense. But because the term, the important thing to know about language, beloved, is very important. Usage determines meaning. Right? Usage determines meaning. Why, why do we say that? Well, there's word studies are nice and etymological studies are nice and they can help us. But in the, at the end of the day, usage determines meaning. Okay? And so in English, in the 21st century, the term apostle in the minds of the persons who speak English means a distinctive person that was in the Bible. That's what, that, that's what the usage is. So if we translate, if we start calling people apostles, in the minds of just about anybody, it's going to be, well, they're like Paul, and they're, they're authoritative and so on. Now, there are people who teach there are authoritative apostles that do speak for God and are the foundation of the church, and that we have to obey them, and if we don't, God is going to judge us. But that's what we, we've had conferences and so on to refute that that idea is just flat out not true. And I would say that we, we are misleading people even using the terminology, even if we only mean it this way. We have another term, missionary, that we can use that works just fine. And it doesn't confuse anybody. Okay? And same goes for prophet. The term prophet can mean an authoritative prophet that speaks for God, but it could also mean one who prophesies. And so when it says in 1 Corinthians 14, let the prophets speak, two or three, and let the others judge, it's using the functional term, term because it says you may all prophesy in 1 Corinthians 14. But the prophecy that they were doing wasn't speaking inerrantly and authoritatively and bindingly for God beyond Scripture, giving new revelations, but they were speaking edification, exhortation, and comfort that comes from the revelation that they'd gotten from Paul that was written in the scriptures and written in the letters that he wrote to them. So we would believe that. We believe that we can admonish one another, encourage one another, exhort one another, bringing out valid implications and applications of scripture that are actually binding, but they come from scripture. And you could call a person who did that a prophet. You can call a gospel preacher a prophet because the gospel preacher is prophesying the terms of salvation, bindingly and authoritatively from God. But we don't do it, and I don't recommend doing that, even, even though you could argue from Scripture that functional terminology is valid and that you could use the term because Paul used it in that way. But again, usage determines meaning, and in English, prophet comes with all this laden down baggage of somebody like Elijah or whatever, that's what we think. So I don't use the term. We don't want to be here to confuse the saints, all right? So these guys that went with Paul with the offering are called apostles, but it's a functional uh, sense, not in an authoritative sense of being the foundation of the church. The foundation is laid once for all. Now there's a couple of grammatical issues in here. Then I have some citations I want to bring from scholars, but 
You probably have heard me talk about the genitive in the Greek a number of times. And as in English, the genitive creates uh, sometimes different possible meanings depending if it's a subjective or an objective genitive. And there's even actually one of my Greek grammars identifies seven or eight different ways that genitives use. So, and, and don't ask me what they are because I, I can't remember. But I did read about it once. But here, it can either mean glory of Christ. Okay, they are messengers, apostolos, of the churches, a glory to Christ or glory of Christ. Now, the NIV and the NASB take this to be an objective genitive and translate glory to Christ. He's the object of the glory. Objective genitive, the New King James, the New RSV, and the ESV translated glory of Christ. Glory of Christ. So, Dr. Garland says the glory of Christ applies to the brothers, but others would translate it differently. Let me go to Barnett. There's also no verb in this sentence. That's another issue. Paul doesn't mind writing sentences that lack verbs. That happens occasionally in the New Testament. There's no verb. So then you have to supply one. It's called an ellipsis. You left the verb out. The reader is supposed to know what he probably meant for a verb because he didn't actually write one. So let me look up uh, Barnett on this one. He goes with glory of Christ too. Whether anyone asks about Titus, See, they ask here, as for Titus, it says here, he is my partner. He is is supplied. It's not in the Greek. Here, Barnett supplies asks about. So he, says, he translates this way. Whether anyone asks about Titus, he is my partner, fellow worker, toward you. He asks about our brothers. They are apostles of the churches, the glory of Christ. So here, several verbs are supplied that are lacking in the Greek. And then Barnett comments, in this statement, there are various qualifications. The notions of representation is implicit. Titus is Paul's partner, a fellow worker toward you, Corinthians. The unnamed brothers are apostles of the Macedonian churches. The specific purpose for which these brothers were elected as apostles was to represent the churches of their province in escorting the collection, this gift, to Jerusalem. So that's the main point. And uh, the glory of Christ or glory to Christ, you can decide. I don't think either way will take us in, into an erroneous understanding because Christ does uh, glorify himself through his church and the church exists and the people in the church to bring glory to Christ. I was going to quote Ralph Martin, whose, whose commentary is from the Word series, which is a very scholarly series of, of commentaries, and he says this, a second tribute is that these two men, or maybe three if we include Titus, are doxa Christu, literally the glory of Christ, which is on face value a title of high honor. If we wish to be more precise, we may inquire, does it mean an inherent dignity belonging to their appointment? Is, is it used to bolster these hepastaloi, whom the Pauline churches recognize over against the pretensions of the 
pseudo-apostoloi, false apostles, 11, 13 to 15, who are professed to be emissaries of the Jerusalem church and who in turn are set apart from Paul's office within the class of servants of Christ? Or is it an inscription of less moment as the translation, they reflect Christ? Or if the idea is too minimal as, as this other guy's interpretation when he regards them as representatives of Christ's splendor? It's difficult to decide. Sometimes there's just ambiguity, and the genitive creates the same ambiguity in English, so I'm just trying to give you the best understanding I can come up with. So, one way or another, there's there's the glory of Christ, and this is somehow enhanced, either they're bringing glory to him, or they're reflecting his glory by doing this in a godly way with men who are appointed to be representatives of the church. It's obvious that Paul puts a lot of weight of importance on this offering. He mentions it in Romans. He mentions it in 1 Corinthians. It's mentioned in Acts. It's mentioned in 2 Corinthians. So this was really important to him. And a few weeks ago, I asserted that the reason it was important was he saw that as symbolic of the unity of the church, the the Greek, mostly Greek churches or Greek-speaking churches, and uh, Greek-influenced churches, Gentile churches, and the unity of the church in Jerusalem, which was Jewish. And Paul definitely did not want the church to split into a Jewish branch and a Gentile branch. Now, somebody asked me the other day about the church in Jerusalem and how, how it fared in history, and I wasn't 100% sure, and I'm not so sure I answered very clearly, but in the course of studying to be prepared to speak in Illinois, I did a whole bunch of reading of very early church history because I wanted, to esta- I wanted to establish that the earliest church fathers like Clement and Polycarp did not believe there were any more authoritative apostles. And I, so I read a little bit of the history of the church in Jerusalem. And from what I can understand there, the thing that really wiped out not only that church but Judaism as being established in Jerusalem, was not so much the events of 70 A.D., although that was quite devastating, but the events of 135 A.D. The 135 Bar Kochiba revolt that was wiped out by Hadrian, Hadrian just destroyed. He, He absolutely said, that's the end. Never again are we going to have a Jewish revolt against Rome. And he he just... Uh, devastated the Jews and probably the Jewish Christians and there's not much record of a Christian church or anything like it after that. So they, uh, that's, what, that's the history that I was reading. 135 was very, very devastating and after 135 the Jewish presence in Israel was extremely limited all the way until the 20th century. And, but God didn't forget his promise to the patriarchs, did he? And he restored Israel in 1948. Verse 24. Therefore, openly before the churches, show them the proof of your love and our reason for boasting about you. There, I did have a passage to look up. Dick, could you look up 3 John 1.8? 3 John 1.8. Um, the term boasting is a theme in 2 Corinthians. Paul uh, is fond of the term translated boast. And he uses it both negatively and positively in his letters. In some places, he, he says, where is boasting? It's excluded. <laughs> Why is it excluded? Because 
anything that we have that's of any value came from the Lord. Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 4, What do you have that you didn't receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you hadn't received it? But on the other hand, he does boast about people in the Lord, and he does say, let him boast, let him boast in the Lord. And Paul doesn't mind boasting about somebody that the Lord's done a work of grace in, because he understands it as a work of grace and not as a work of man. Okay, back to 3 John 1.8. Therefore, we ought to support such men so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. Fellow workers. Yeah, that's the term, fellow workers for the truth. And that was from John. These apostles, the New Testament apostles, put a really, very high regard on truth, and they were highly, they highly praised anybody who would walk in truth because it was quite obvious that that generally wasn't the case, even amongst the churches. And so John says, I, I have no greater joy than to hear that my little children walk in truth. All right, And so fellow workers with the truth would be people that to be highly committed because it's so rare. And it's become that way in our day as well. Okay, so therefore, openly before the churches, show them the proof of your love. Those words sound, demonstrate, or the word for demonstrate, they're, they're a verb and noun form of the same word. If you wanted to try to bring out the same sort of a sound in, in English, it would say, demonstrate the demonstration of your love. That's kind of how it goes in Greek. And of our reason for boasting about you. How, how would they do that? Well, by being faithful, by finishing the collection, by uh, participating. He's, he's very concerned that perhaps the Corinthians are going to decide they don't want to participate. And that's going to be the beginning of chapter 9. We'll see that Paul anticipates a very ugly situation that could arise that he wants to make sure he staves off. Okay, He's worried that the Corinthians will decide, I don't want to participate now, and that it will bring shame and uh, a bad situation. Here's what uh, Garland says about verse 24. Genuine beneficence is not something that one can fake or produce on demand because it will always be begrudged. It ensues naturally from experiencing God's grace. (laughs) A recipient of grace becomes gracious. A recipient of grace is a person who realizes that if God had left us to our own selves, we would be horrible. We would not be people who love others. We would not be people who love God. We would not be the people that we are today. And when we talk about the solas of the Reformation, I don't think we want to forget that last one. To the glory of God alone. Okay? To the glory of God alone. So that God has done a work of grace, and I recognize that He has, and I recognize that if I am loving If I am loving the truth, if I am willing to take action that God wants me to in regard to the welfare of the body of Christ, it's only because of God's grace alone and to the glory of God alone. 
so those solas are, are near and dear to my heart. Any further comments before we go to chapter 9? Anybody? And essentially I want to say, well said, well done, and I applaud you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Starting with chapter 9 now, there's a, a touchy situation. It's kind of interesting how Paul handles a very touchy situation. And if you misinterpret it, you could think that Paul was almost playing games here to try to get this money, but we know he's not doing that. And so verses 1 through 5 are dealing with, I'll just want to read all five of those because it's dealing with how he's handling a possible hiccup that could derail this whole thing. For it is superfluous for me to write to you about this ministry to the saints, that is the offering. For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the Macedonians, namely that Achaia has been prepared since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. Okay, now get this in mind. Paul to the Macedonians, remember Macedonia is north of Achaia. It's all in what we now call Greece. But Macedonia is north of Achaia. Achaia is where Corinth is. Macedonia is where Berea, Thessalonica, and churches like that are. Okay? Philippi, I believe. Now, Paul had previously started this collection or prepared for it in Corinth, and then there was intervening issues and that Titus was sort of the emissary about. And the question was whether the Corinthians were going to repent. One of the difficulties in interpreting 2 Corinthians is that we're always having to recreate the scenario. Because lying behind what Paul's saying is this whole thing where the severe letter went out, the fear was that they were not going to repent and they were going to believe the super-apostles, or pseudo-apostles, and not believe Paul. And, but the collection had already been proposed to the Corinthians earlier, and they'd agreed to it. And so Paul was using that fact to motivate the Macedonians. He was saying to the Macedonians, the Corinthians are eager to do this, and I want you to participate. All right, that's what he's saying here. And it worked. It, it stirred, up, stirred up the Macedonians, and they gave to it. Remember, though, always of their free will. We saw that earlier. He uses freely several times, not out of constraint. But then he says in verse 3, But I have sent the brethren in order that our boasting about you may not be made empty in this case. So here's what he's worried about. I went to the Macedonians and boasted about the Corinthians. They gave. Now if they go back with the money from Macedonia and the emissaries from Macedonia and they get there and the Corinthians say, No, we're not going to give a penny to this thing. Get out of here. It's going to make Paul look in a very compromised situation. Say so the Macedonians would say, Paul, you told us the Corinthians were ready to do this and were excited to do it, and we gave uh, partly based on that fact, and now we get there and they won't give us anything. So Paul's writing to the Corinthians to try to make sure that doesn't happen. But he wants to do so in a tender way because he doesn't want to hold it. He doesn't want to manipulate them, but he needs this collection to go forward. So that's the difficult situation. Are we endorsing manipulation? Uh, no. No, I, no, we're not. And I, I'm going to read some things about this. I hope I can do this as a chunk here. But um, we're not endorsing manipulation, but he's wanting this to work to everybody's good. 
All right? And that's, and that's what he's trying to do. But I sent the brethren in order that our boasting about you may not be made empty in this case, so that, as I was saying, you may be prepared. Otherwise, if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we not to speak of you will be put to shame by this confidence. Hupostasis is the Greek there. So I thought it necessary to urge the brethren that they would go on ahead to you and arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift so that the same would be ready as a bountiful gift and not affected by covetousness. So Paul wants these guys to go before he does and have this all set so that there's unity and everything goes the way it should. But he wants to do it without manipulating the Corinthians, so it's kind of an awkward situation. Yes, try. I think what Paul is doing here, he's just stating facts. He's not... If he was manipulating, he'd be lying and twisting things, but I think he's just laying out facts. The fact is, this is the situation he's in. And, the, you know, the, the readiness that he spoke of to the Macedonians was true, all right? But then there was the intervening conflict. So that makes it a little less sure that they're still going to be ready. But if they're not, we may have a problem. I'll, let me. This is not... This is an interesting pastoral passage. You cannot be an elder or a pastor without getting into sticky situations, even if you didn't do anything to create them. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> it's reality. I, I just was in one. I'm not going to talk about it, but I was just in one where I had to communicate something that was not fun to communicate, but I needed to do it, and I needed to do it in a pastoral way. And so on. This, this is just the way life is. It, you can't raise kids without getting into sticky situations. All right? And what's important is our motivation of our heart. Okay? If our motivation is to make sure we save face no matter what, before any other consideration, we're going to hurt people. The number one role in life can't, for, can't be, I have to look good. That, that sort of thing of having to look good is very damaging to Christian leadership. It's absolutely, it's very damaging. And that need to look good will actually lead us away from the truth and lead us away from the gospel. I got an interesting email from a missionary in Japan that we know. We've published some of his stuff on our scholarly. His name is Bruce. Bruce, I know you. He listens. <laughs> Bruce. His daughter came when, when she was in MCAD. Anyhow, it may come to me. But anyhow, he sent me an interesting email because he heard us talking on the radio about an email I got from a pastor who was criticizing me for writing a book. Remember that? And, and Dick brought it up on the radio and said, well, the pastor's criticizing you for writing a book because somebody in his church gave it to him to try to stave off the church becoming purpose-driven. And the reason he was upset with me was that he said, why do you write that book? You should have wrote a book telling us how to do church, not what's wrong. And my answer was, well, I already have that book outlined, and it's going to be the third one, but I thought I'd wait until I was old as possible before I told anybody how to how they ought to be a pastor of a church. <laughs> so uh, make sure I'd learned something about it. But... Here's what I got back from this uh, guy. who He actually teaches in a college or something down in Japan. He says, this is the problem. And this is a problem here in Japan. It's a problem all over the world. 
The problem is that the pastors don't, they want to avoid losing face. Okay? And so if a member of their congregation comes and points out something that maybe the congregational member is right and is true, the thing that really annoys the pastor is he just lost face for having found himself possibly on the wrong side of something. So my book gave the member the ability to show the pastor he was wrong. And that's why he didn't like my book. Now, I would say this. None of us love losing face isn't, isn't fun for anybody. Okay, we, we don't like that. But on the other hand, it's not fatal. Okay? I've been wrong. I'll be wrong again. Okay? I will not always make the most wise decision that could possibly be made. I always can be corrected by somebody in the congregation. And we have a congregation that does it. That's why it's hard to find guest speakers. <laughs> be forewarned. It's a tough audience. Because if you don't, if you get your theology messed up, you'll have 20 people. Of course, you know, Gary's church is pretty good too about that. I, I was preaching on 1 Peter 2.2 about newborn babes desiring the pure milk. And I made a really big point out of it. But on my PowerPoints, it said 2 Peter 2.2. And about six people said, your PowerPoint's wrong, your PowerPoint's wrong. I said, I know, I know, I'm going to fix it. <laughs> it's one beater, two, two. So in this case, it's not the end of the world to lose face, but it is wrong to, for the flock to be harmed. And I think Paul's motivation, yeah, he could lose face, but that's not his main concern. His main concern is the well-being of both the churches in Corinth and in Macedonia and ultimately in Jerusalem, and that this offering would be done in a right way that's not manipulative, because he said several times, not out of coercion. And then he's going to go on after he gets through this little bump in the road here and talk about a joyful giver and things like that. And so he's not manipulating anything, but he wants this to work and wants it to work right. And uh, saving face isn't the key thing that God's called us to do in Christian ministry. The easiest way to save face is just never teach anything. Because then you couldn't possibly be wrong. All right? But that's not what we're called to do. Okay, I was going to look up an explanation from Barnett that I thought rung true as I read it. And then I have a little summary here. Let me find my... Spot. Barnett 431. Here's, here's Barnett's explanation of it. Here then is a situation of some sensitivity. During his period of ministry among the Macedonians, Paul had pointed with pride to the Corinthians' willingness in regard to the collection. He had told them that Achaia had been prepared since last year. Your zeal, he tells them, has stirred the Macedonians to respond generously beyond his expectations. Chapter 8, verses 2 and 5. But now Titus has come from Corinth with the discouraging report that the collection is in the doldrums. This, as he points out in verses 3 through 5, could now be a cause of some embarrassment both to him and them. This also now puts into perspective several matters in chapter 8. Critical to this text is the phrase prepared since last year, that is, from the time Titus initiated the collection. Paul picks up the, this word in the next two verses. He is sending the brothers on ahead from Macedonia 
so the Corinthians will be prepared. Lest the Macedonians who will come with Paul find the Corinthians unprepared. So that's, that's the delicacy of the situation that, he, that, that I'm describing to you here. And he, therefore, wanted to write ahead to hopefully stave off possible worse situation and to make sure that this goes forward the way he wants it to. I have a couple of verses, and I'll try to get a little deeper into this. Uh, oh yes, Troy, go ahead. Do you think a ch- there's a chance that he didn't want the Corinthians to be uh, embarrassed too? Yes, absolutely. He, he's concerned that the Corinthians aren't embarrassed in the eyes of the Macedonians because he is concerned about the unity of the, the churches that he, of which he founded and through his preaching. And he's concerned about the unity of the gospel. Unity is an important thing. I believe in unity. I believe in the unity of the gospel that Paul talks about in Philippians, that we're just striving together with one mind for the unity of the gospel. I really believe that. But it's not always an easy thing to achieve because churches are populated by human beings. And we have our issues, and there's things that happen and, and things that can get us off track. But we've got to realize that the gospel itself is worth being unified around. Here's another summary of the situation here. From, this is from Garland, a summary. There's one thing to chide a church for being dilatory in their giving. It's something else to motivate individuals in the church to be free and unselfish in their giving. How does one develop an individual such a happy spirit about giving? Church leaders throughout the ages have faced the same challenge that confronted Paul. And the next verse is Paul presents four principles that are not directed to the Corinthian church as a whole, but to individuals whose contribution will make up the church's gift. First, he appeals to a proverb to make the point that a bountiful giving leads to bountiful rewards, stingy giving leads to stingy rewards, 9.6. Second, he cites scripture to encourage giving generously and freely because God loves a cheerful giver. Third, he refers to God's readiness to provide all that's necessary for generosity, 9, 8 through 10. Paul reassures those who might worry that they do not have enough seed to sow to attain a rich harvest. God will provide all they need. Fourth, he maintains that their generosity will bring a great harvest of thanksgiving to God. That's a summary of chapter 9 of the teachings that Paul is going to bring in chapter 9. So it's an interesting balance. I hope it's not the easiest to interpret, and some people have pointed out the Second Corinthians may be the most difficult New Testament verse to interpret of all of them. And the reason for that, notoriously, is the fact that there's so much information that Paul and the Corinthians share that we don't, are not privy to. So we're always trying to recreate the situation to see what he's talking about. Now, here's the balance, if you want to look at it this way. The balance that Paul presents in chapters 8 and 9 about giving. In one hand, he's absolutely against manipulating and demanding or making a law. Here's the law you must give or you're rebelling against God. He refuses to do that, and he says giving is to be free. And one of the few places we find the term free will in the Bible is in a passage in 2 Corinthians 8 about giving. It could legitimately be translated free will. So that's in 2 Corinthians 8. But on the other hand... He knows that these other things are true. He knows that it's true that God does bless people that, that are generous. 
And he knows that God loves a joyful giver. And he knows that the church ought to give and they ought to care for one another and so on. And that this is important to them. But he doesn't want to create a situation of an abuse or control or manipulation. So you see both concerns are balancing themselves out in this session. So, yes, we should give. Yes, we should give regularly. Yes, we should give generously. But overall, in the end, it must be freely. And we're not giving in order to buy some favor with God. Because if you remember, the number one theological term in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 concerning giving is charis, grace. God is gracious to us. Yes. Uh, it just seems like a, a kind of like the, the situation when Paul was talking about the food situation too. You know, if someone's a vegetarian, don't get on their case. You know, he's talking about conscience. And so as you, you know, become more uh, conformed to the image of Christ through sanctification, if your conscience says do something and you don't do it, then you're sinning. Um, yeah, there's a concern about that in Romans 14. Yes. And... If you feel that there's something you need to do or must do, let, let me tell you about delicate situations that, that arise and some, some things. I'll just do it generically back in the past. The only way you learn anything about ministry is you make mistakes, you learn, and so on. I've seen situations where someone I knew to be quite poor wanted to give generously beyond their means. And the initial thought was to tell them not to do it. But then, I, the more I understood this, then I began to realize something. Doing so was, not, was shaming that person. In other words, if the person themselves, not having been manipulated, not having been told the health and wealth message, not having been told anything other than they saw a need and they want to give to it, and they do so of their own free will, and it was their idea to say, no, I don't want your money, you're too poor, shames that person, and it brings uh, inequality in the body of Christ in a way I don't think God would like. That that person's gift should be received graciously if it was given graciously. And, and I may think as a pastor, well, this, this is the last person that can afford to give this gift, and there's so, so many other people in the congregation that have more money that could afford to give it. I may think it's not right. But in my opinion, it's wrong to say, no, we don't want your money. Does anybody want to talk about that? Uh, Sam. Would it be wise on the pastor's, pastor's side to at least inquire about their, their intent or the purpose of their giving? Where, because there's so much in the world today giving to get, if it's just purely giving from the heart, and uh, you know, obviously we we can't know the motivation, but it would it be wise for the pastor at least inquire in that in that area? Yeah. And, and in the cases that I can think of, and this goes back into the 80s, so it's not it's nothing current. Uh, it was obvious the motivation of the heart was they want to participate, just a desire to participate, like the Corinthians had here. Uh, and the Macedonians. And, and that's exactly... Well, and I think I'm staying within Scripture on this because let's, let's go back to chapter 8. All right? Because Paul said that that's exactly what happened in Macedonia. So these are poor churches that were under heavy persecution. A lot of them probably had, didn't have jobs because they'd been run out of their jobs through persecution. 
And here's what it says about the grace of God. That's the topic. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. Now, Paul did not say to the Macedonians, no, I don't want your gift. I'm going to go get the money from Corinth because they got more money. Do you see what I mean? Because it would shame them because they did, as long as they did this freely and, and the joy that they had was their desire to participate. And Paul received it. So we may look across the church and say, well, here's somebody that has a lot of money. Here's somebody else that does. And they're the ones that should give all the money for the church because they got all this money. But God, more, God works in people's hearts and they do according, between them and God. And and I've seen the the poor be the most generous givers over and over again as long as I've been in the ministry. The only comment I think I'd have would be along the lines of if the person isn't making their uh, payments, you know, if they're uh, not doing the things that they're responsible for, if there's real hurt in their family that they should be stepping up to, perhaps they should be taking care of that first. Yeah, if I thought... It was a, a, a family was being neglected or people not being fed or clothed. That'd be a different situation. But when, you know, it's just God uses who he uses. Clinton. What I like what you just said earlier in the explanation was that the Romans 14 thing. And um, a lot of people have different levels of understanding of the scripture. But nobody really has a sensory acuity to the sensitivity of all the brothers in the body. Mm-hmm. And so making sure that you find out first where they're at so they don't stumble or been run over. Mm-hmm. And because the and Romans 14 is rarely ever talked about in churches. Things have a tendency to just go black and white. Yeah, Romans 14 is a very important chapter. And if you're interested in some teaching on Romans 14... If you go to TwinCityFellowship.com, Sermons, and if you look down the left column where you have books of the Bible, choose Romans, and then within then you can go down to Romans 14. And Dick and I, we had, I thought we, those came out really well. Dick and I just worked through Romans 14 of what are these issues and how does it work in the church and what's Paul talking about. And it's about things where people are different. And people end up with different rules in their families. They come up with different ideas about what they can eat and so on. And Paul preserves the differences. And I think the main key in that verse to understand is that you have a strong brother and you have a weaker brother in a particular area, but both are born again. Yes. That's the key, and that's what people don't normally see when they study Romans 14. You're talking about two Christians here. Yep, absolutely. And... Strong there doesn't mean strong, let's say, that they have deficient faith. Remember how we talked about that, Dick? It's not that their faith is de- deficient for the weak person, but that it won't sustain them in as many places. Oh, they were talking about meat. Well, yeah. In other words, weak meaning the weak one eats only vegetables, he says. Okay. Now, the reason possibly Paul would say that was that there was so much concern that meat may have possibly been offered to idols, whether they knew it, whether it was or not, in that world, that they, their faith was such that if they 
ate something that maybe was even offered to an idol, it would be terrible and it would be devastating to their own faith. But their saving faith is just as strong as anybody else's because they know Christ as Lord and Savior, and they are saved. It's just that Paul can say elsewhere, whatever you see in the meat market, buy and eat without, no, eat without asking any questions of conscience sake. That's what he said. All right? Now, he didn't say eat it if it has magus growing on it or something, but don't worry where it came from. If it's in the butcher shop, you could eat it. But then in Romans 14, Paul talks about the ones who just can't do that. They can't, they can't do it, even though they would be free to do it if they were wanted to. They just can't. There's, their faith doesn't sustain them there. And so then he says not to do it. And, and he says two things uh, for the weak and the strong. The strong, who could go eat that, are not to judge the weaker brother. They're not to say, look down their nose at anybody and say, what's wrong with you? They should never do that, ever, ever, ever. That person's faith is precious. And the weak need to resist the temptation of accusing the strong of sinning. In other words, if you can do something I can't, I think you're a sinner. And uh, they shouldn't do that either. And then we can coexist. So that's Romans 14. You can go listen to a discussion on that. Uh, next week, I'll, I'll pick this up. Kind of think about this. First one is 9. I'll try to get verses 1 through 5 out of the way. And then we'll get into Paul further instructions about what sort of giving, what giving is really supposed to be like. Okay? God bless you. See you upstairs.